Welcome, everyone, to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ritson, here, as always, with my handsome co-hosts, Hapsel Rigner and Nil Run Mardux. Boys, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks, man. Doing really well. And we're about to be doing even better when we will be joined shortly by Dimitri of RabbitX, better known as Back the Bunny online. And I think he's one of the smartest, funniest guys on crypto Twitter. And I'm really excited that we were able to get him on the show. Yeah, he ties together a bunch of the different topics we've talked about on the network cage. And he's also living it as an expat. So, I mean, I, I love to see it. And especially that take he had about sort of this guerrilla warfare analogy to crypto regulations where, you know, we're like the rice farmers fighting the U.S. and Vietnam by being participants in DeFi and kind of battling against the SEC. So I like that kind of war framing. It's fun. Like, obviously, I do not condone overthrowing the U.S. or anything like that. I love America. Um, but it's, it's fun to see. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that and kind of seeing the difference between his Twitter personality and what he's like um, on the pod. Yeah, and I think we're also going to get into some AI stuff and uh, potentially put Bitchell's mind at ease about uh, the the coming apocalypse or lack thereof. I have, I have plenty of other neuroses to keep me busy. Uh, oh, if thank we to get good, of good, that good. One. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a really great episode and we'll get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Network Age. And today we are joined by our good friend Dimitri um, of RabbitX, Back the Bunny on Twitter, one of the best crypto and crypto adjacent accounts online who just has so many interesting takes. And we're really excited to, to have him on here to chat with us. So, uh, Dimitri, thank you for joining us. Yeah, a pleasure. Um, I, I genuinely listened to the Network Age like uh, before all this. So when you guys reached out, I was... Uh, Pleasantly surprised and honored, so happy to be here. Oh, we were pleasantly surprised when you when you said you listened. So um, a great meeting of of. Oh yeah, here. yeah. No, I definitely and, do. I mean, I wasn't surprised because this is like the world's greatest podcast. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I, everyone, every, it's a huge honor. Uh huh. Uh huh. You're you're welcome. You'll get yes. your trophy in the mail. Um, Listen, if, if early stage probably, like VC investing had a podcast, it would be this one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, most of our listeners will already be familiar with your exemplary work on Twitter. And if you're not, you should go back and make sure to, to follow him because there's a lot of great stuff there. But I, I think we're all interested in hearing how exactly you got into this world, you know, how you became involved with RabbitX and what led to, you know, Back the Bunny, which has become a sort of um, powerhouse of, uh, of crypto uh, Twitter. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, yeah, my, my journey uh, to crypto was, you know, I, I was exposed to it very early, but didn't fully respect what it was. I actually like got, um, uh, payments for like utility for, uh, uh, utility payments for where I lived from a roommate in Doge, like two months after it came out, uh, he was into Bitcoin. Yeah. Like no joke. I, and at the time I didn't, <laughs> I, and I, I actually did, I, I still have it though. It's not enough to like, I'm not like rich off that by any means, but I mean, it's, it's a pleasantly good chunk of change for a utility uh -huh. payment. Um, but <laughs> at the time, though, I accepted Doge or Bitcoin because memetically I was like, well, this one seems like it has more staying power, which in hindsight was actually a, a good statement because I can't believe Doge as a meme is still relevant today. Like, yeah, and Bitcoin's mostly forgotten. You know, Doge is <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't right, but I wasn't wrong. I wasn't as right as I could have been, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just viewed them as tokens bouncing around. I liked the concept. I, I appreciated what they were. I was never negative, um, but I was sort of just agnostic, I suppose, because like, well, there's a token bouncing around. There's XRP, there's ETH, there's Doge, whatever. Like, they're all the same thing. Um, and I was mostly a, a TradFi guy and a SaaS investor. Um, tech stocks is like where I was you know, focused mostly. And then I remember when Parler got booted from AWS, uh, I saw a post about Filecoin and oh, this is what Filecoin fixes there for, for, for hosting services. And I was mm. like, what? Like, what are you talking about? How does crypto host AWS, an AWS service and, and storage like that? That's, and I looked into it, I was like, wow, this is a business. Like, there's actual like payments here and people providing a service in like a peer to peer decentralized way. Like, holy shit, this is not, these are not, this is not just a token bouncing around. What else am I missing? And that would, 
that's what made me like take start looking into ETH earnestly. This was about maybe uh, mid 2020-ish or so. Um, and that's when I started like applying this, this interest when I realized, okay, there's like economic value here being built out in a very real way. And I've been all consumed by it ever since. And um, I can't imagine like working in another space. And uh, that's kind of just, you know, that natural learning process and just being uh, immersed in it all uh, brought me to kind of here now. And then to Rabbit, who um, I reached out to after I got wiped out pretty hard during the crash, you know, over this last <laughs> year and a half, <laughs> as we've all kind of been, some of us more than others. Um, maybe some of my success was a low interest rate phenomenon. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, honestly, like getting wiped hard by that, and I'm going to do a thread on this too that kind of discusses how paths change based off of things that seemed bad at the time. Uh, getting hit pretty hard there actually led me just like, all right, well, let's let's look for jobs. Let's see what's out there. I want to be in this space and let's see what I find. And um, I found Rabbit, which at the time was Strips, which was an interest rate swap project. And uh, we pivoted because, frankly, rate swaps, are, it's too nascent. There's not really PMF for it yet in this space. Um, but perpetuals, there are. And so we pivoted that a while ago. We've been building out Rabbit. Um, I started off doing a lot of research and strategy stuff. And, you know, it's a very generalist role. And as we developed and got closer to launch, it was like, all right, well, now we need to get known and be made aware of. And I was like, okay, well, Twitter is definitely the best avenue for that. And this might be a good way to make me you know, I always kind of wanted to share the content and the opinions and the stuff I'm putting out there on Back to Bunny, but it takes a bit of like discipline and, you know, diligence to do that and to like, yeah, to just to, just to stay consistent that way. And I was like, this might be a good tool or a good means to actually make me apply myself in this domain. It actually might also serve, hopefully serves as a double benefit that it makes us visible um, via just, you could say content marketing. Um, so that's kind of what it is. Uh, and it kind of has held me accountable and to stay consistent and, you know, uh, not get too out there and stay, you know, within the boundaries of like, Hey, focused research, put out things that, you know, can also need to be associated with an organization. So it kind of reigns in my shit postiness in a bit too, which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, it's good. Like I kind of like that there's a semi docs here, not a full docs, but enough to keep me honest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, Did you already yeah. have experience in finance before deciding to work on a DEX? Or like, could you talk a little bit about your background prior to crypto? Yeah, so um, fairly broad background. Um, I, I do have TradFi experience. Um, I worked at, at a brokerage as a risk analyst for about three years um, on the hedge fund desk. So uh, reviewing margining positions and how mm. options and stock and stuff was being managed from a risk standpoint, liquidations, explaining that. A lot of explanations. That was basically my role was talking to PMs and managers and making sure they understood like risk calculations and how their positions would be treated. Um, did that for about three years. Um, I did some financial writing and political writing published for a bit, like not on like a, not on a blog, like on, a, on publications um, for a while as well. And that was kind of interspersed between there. And then I've done uh, B2B FinTech sales, uh, financial technology sales and like startup in the startup world for about three ish years or so um, when I was in Manhattan, mostly. So kind of broad, but it's all definitely financially oriented and tied in. Um, some TradFi experience, uh, some startup stuff, et cetera, and then writing as well. So kind of ties in well to, frankly, what I'm doing here. It, it weirdly coalesces nicely into this role. So, I want to go back just for a second and talk about your um, marketing perspective because you, you kind of have, well, for one thing, you're, as you said, semi-doxed, but semi-not-doxed. And I it seems that you're... Your Twitter is how can I how can I say this diplomatic diplomatically um, spicy, a bit spicy. <laughs> and so so how do you like how did you come to the to the conclusion that that Twitter spiciness was going to be like a benefit rather than a hindrance to you know building a business that a bunch of people are going to use potentially. Well, you know, you're yeah, not like yeah. sassy Wendy's, but you're putting out some uh, some like interesting takes, right? Like this is all backed up by, you know, a lot of times like longer threads, right? You're you, you're spicy at first and then we, we get the long explanation. Right, right, right. Yeah. And yeah, and, and that's true. And the mindset for that and I think kind of the mindset for anything if you're trying to or if you're just offering an opinion that is uh, kind of classic or a little, like you said, spicy or a little hot. Um, I'd like to think I can defend it, or at least I can always explain my thinking. Like, I think some people, when they drop these like incendiary 
very like antagonistic stuff. They kind of just drop it and it gets viewed and interacted with. But, you know, that's kind of a flash in the pan sugar high. And those people tend to not uh, be persistently visible in a way that really, really care what they have to say. So, I mean, I am saying things that are unusual, like, you know, I suppose, but they're all, they're very tied in though to like a DeFi ethos and to ardently, like at the end of the day, very ardently caring about our space and advocating for it. So like they can be dark at times and they're definitely a little off color or what have you, but they tie into like a theme though, that I think is consistent and kind of along that lines too. I don't see any value in being just relatively blase and just unnoticeable. And I'm not doing it intentionally to be noticed. I'm just not holding back out of fear of being too spicy. And if I can defend it and I can rationalize and speak to it, and I, I really believe it too. I'm not just saying it to get like eyes. Like I, I believe all the stuff I say. Um, then, hey, like that's how you get noticed. Like, And so I thought, you know, hey, what better way to maybe have this account be noticed and have it be a de facto form of good marketing and visual if I, you know, reach out and just, hey, just say what you think and just make sure you can defend it. So that's kind of my, I guess, mindset for what I tend to say. Well, let's, uh, let's not bury the lead too much here. And I, I, and I'd like to get back to, to rabbit and, um, the perpetual decks eventually, but let's talk about, uh, some of these spicy takes, you know, we're just saying, all right, there's, there's spicy takes out there. We got to say what, say what they are. And I think one of the most, um, popular, interesting threads that you put out there was about the, the parallels between, um, guerrilla warfare and crypto regulation and how the the u.s has and the sec has gone after these these large bodies but can't finish off you know the the decentralized um the military that sort of operates in a more guerrilla manner so i was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit that idea and what you think its its implications are yeah um and i came to that through this series because, I mean, I've, I've kind of have had this mindset that, hey, the U.S. is going to do pretty much what it wants. Because um, I think historically it has done what it wants when it thinks it's serious enough or important enough. And, you know, I was reading some things on how business and uh, warfare correlate. And warfare is a leading indicator for business in a lot of ways. And when I was reading that, I was like, whoa, wait, I'm, I, this, this parallel actually sound, makes a lot of sense and also makes a lot of sense abstracted over the DeFi. And then I started, like, looking at our development process and, you know, Bitcoin being, you know, more like uh, mercantilist trade guilds, you know, like really basic stuff. And then it starts organizing, structuring itself more like, you know, third generation or second generation business with ETH and smart contracts. Like basically as more coordination is implemented, the sophistication of attack and structure you know, elevates. Um, and so just kind of drawing from warfare still from that analogy, like drawing from like, listen, the most advanced strategic and tactical things usually start at, in the warfare domain. And then applying the mindset of like, listen, the U.S. is this is a, this is a structural threat to the United States and and their infrastructure and their ability to control and things in their empire. Um, I believe it's like let's start applying this here in a way that's helpful or at least useful. And I think the guerrilla warfare mentality and like you know the Vietnam farmer meme that I draw to a lot applies here, where you know a distributed network of you know, anonymous uh, types that are very well funded and have a you know cryptography and AGI at their at their disposal. It's going to be very, very difficult. And it's going to take on like, a, I think, a guerrilla type mentality. I think the U.S. is going to approach it like a slow intensity warfare thing, kind of like mm. the same way they approach the war on drugs, which, you know, anyway, um, pause there. Maybe so that makes sense. They're not good at fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say, I mean, you why guys do you say it's drugs, structurally? Right? Well, yeah, the drugs are, we've seen drugs. <laughs> Don't do drugs, kids. Um <laughs> But Dimitri, why would you say it's such a structural threat? Like, why are we at? Why is the U.S. at war? I mean, a lot of people are investing a lot of time in lobbying the U.S. in trying to get pro-crypto regulation passed. There have been, you know, various bills that look decent. Um, I think from that senator from Wyoming, Loomis, and I think even a senator from New York. So I'm just curious, like, why do you think it's structurally such a threat to the U.S. that they would go kind of like drugs and kind of hit it as a, as a war? Hmm. Um, so I'm viewing this from, from the lens of, uh, and, and I, and I'm not trying to use this, this, this like vernacular to be like really like hardcore here. Like I'm really, I think this is the right framework to see and I'm viewing the U S as a cartel and it's a cartel that has a lot of power and yields a lot of diplomacy abroad through its financial infrastructure. It's how it actually mostly gets what it wants. 
um, you know, mostly in conjunction with, you know, proxy warfare, like kind of we're seeing now in a lot of places we've seen um, here and there with like guerrilla skirmishes or like Cold War stuff. It doesn't become full blown stuff anymore. But the U.S. by and large exerts its will locally and abroad, well, mostly abroad, um, through dollar diplomacy, sanctions, things like that, that help it yield control. And also locally, it exerts that, you know, through things like KYC and AML. And, you know, KYC is is something any low lowbrow detective could do. It's not a cost a bank needs to help police work. It's it can be figured out if someone broke, you know, violated something like a detective could figure that out. So this is like structurally applied to every single person and all these kind of mechanics is is very much a form of it's a power. It's a form of power exertion to monitor mm-hmm. infrastructure and make sure you, you know collect taxes and do everything in a way that allows you to keep existing. So that's why I'm, I need to like frame it from this lens of I think that's the appropriate way to view this entity and the way it largely maintains a great deal of its current like you could say empirical empire empire style um, control and everything that DeFi and crypto does undermines that like there's every single thing about the infrastructure in circumventing these middlemen that until this time had been necessary like i'm not going to call banks or brokers parasites like they're they're not just rent seekers they provided real services because the infrastructure has not existed that allows peer-to-peer financial transactions, right? For the same reason, there's a reason why Blockbuster Blockbuster existed before Netflix. It's because we can stream stuff into our homes on computers. The tech needed to get there. And then there was an obviously superior version of consuming that content. And that's what the evolution of crypto and DeFi is on the backbone of the internet. And so what all of these things do is undermines at every level almost US control of the things that it really leans on to wield its big heavy stick. And so just viewing that as a zero sum game, which I mean, economic activity and financial success does not have to be, but I do think power and control is the U.S. only stands to lose from this relationship. And that's why the U.S. and probably most of its vassals, but you might see some, you know, by the Western states in general, probably will too, but maybe to a lesser extent. But I think the U.S. by far will be the most negative because it will continue to internalize what this loss of control means. And I think you're seeing that more and more and more with how it's getting you, you mm-hmm. just see that with the behavior you're seeing, and I think it'll only get worse. But I don't think they'll win, and that's kind of the black pill to black pill to white pill viewpoint. And eventually, they'll lose, but near term, they're not going to understand that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like that framing of it's just a better technology. Although it is interesting, I feel like in the U.S. there was a lot of debate: like, do, is crypto even valuable? What does it do? But at the same time, that debate's going on. It seems like every single central bank is pursuing a digital currency modeled off of the same blockchain technology. So it. It seems like that debate is kind of like ended and it seems like most governments at least are kind of accepting that crypto is useful. Now it's more, so it's sort of less denial and now it's more all right, confrontation phase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. I, and, and they're going to want the things like banks and what have you to deploy that because there'll be KYC and, you know, like, like USD can be frozen. Those things will be able to be frozen. So I'm not surprised that some version of that will be pushed out too, because well, why not? You know, anyway, sorry. No, sorry. Uh, no, I, I was just in in my five minutes of research that I do for every podcast. I, I noticed that you <laughs> you seem to you seem to think that that um, this that the narrative that crypto is um, you know just drug dealers and and uh, you know like bitchel uh, mm-hmm. it that that it that narrative that has existed for quite some time is actually just like a post hoc rationalization of what the U.S. The U.S.'s real position is just that it's a threat to dollar dominance. Yeah, uh, there's a two-part answer to that. There is some truth in that statement, um, obviously, but there's always been truth in that statement for any new technology, probably ever. Um, And, you know, draw the internet and porn is a great example. Um, You know, the the earliest adopters of new technology are the risk takers. And some of the biggest risk takers you ever find are criminals and sleazebags, right? So like, <laughs> of course, of, of course they'll exist here. Like that's not a solvable problem. In fact, that's kind of an indication that we're building something with value. Like shitheads will pop up. That's okay. Like that's not going to all be that it is, but in an early viewing this as an S curve, you know, in an early stage adopter. Yeah. That's just part of the life cycle. To me, that's like criticizing an infant for crying. Like it's early. It's still a baby. Like it'll grow up. Like as we create stability and allow normies and, people to engage in a way where the UX is, you know, easy to use and what have you, like that'll come. So to me, that's just part of one, the gestation cycle. And two, smearing it as that though, as all that is, and only choosing to view that is just using political language to advance a political goal. 
Um, I've also seen statements like from from my from federal bodies saying like crypto undermines uh, hurts people of color and minorities, just like overtly just asinine. Like I didn't even spend I mean, two we, seconds. We are that. recording on Juneteenth, you know, for our audience. And so uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're here. For, we're say, here for the cause. Whatever you know, there's for they they don't care whether it's you know hurting the left or hurting the right they're just going to advance their argument for whoever's for whoever's listening right because it, the it doesn't need to be enforcing power exactly it doesn't need to be true it needs to be effective like that mm-hmm. remember like when you see that language understand it does not need to be truthful i mean most political language i always attend is not truthful it just needs to have efficacy to advance your goal and that's why i see things like alexi the tornado dev being detained and the prosecutor saying mm-hmm. Well, he can only have work. I mean, this is a statement from the prosecutors. He can only have work doing illegal things in crypto. A guy with this kind of developer experience. Just like, <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Like, obviously you're lying, right? And then I see yeah, statements yeah. that like, if anything, DeFi actually helps minorities and disadvantaged people. It has huge possible benefits for Africa accessing in financial infrastructure. And yet you're telling me it hurts people of color. Like, you're just lying to advance a political agenda. And so I don't think about that more than five seconds when I hear that, because it seems like the implicit goal of that language is very obvious to me. And I think we'll see that more and more and more as this becomes more and more a threat as it undermines, uh, you know, U.S. jurisdiction, U.S. autonomy and control mm. over. So, effort, so you think then efforts to kind of clean up crypto are misguided and that crypto, the community more broadly, should just kind of prepare for this battle. Is that how you'd put it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you should prepare understanding that, like, this is not going to get better. I mean, probably within five years, maybe or so, maybe it starts to get better after five, best case, in my kind of judgment. But I mean, I think you should fully prepare to have anyone who touches DeFi or associates with it. Like, I, I think they'll target cloud providers. Um, I think AWS and the Azure and stuff will eventually, in probably sooner than later, view us the same way banks are now. Where it's like, oh God, you know, I, I, you're in crypto. Maybe I'm going to ask you 14 more KYC questions or close your account. How did you get this money? You know, yeah. for the same reason they sanctioned Tornado, which is literally just a smart contract on chain, as if it was a business. Uh, they're going to apply that same kind of legal, you know, uh, kung fu to Amazon or Azure that's hosting ETH nodes or something. It's like, well, these nodes sent Tornado transactions to a mempool, and that ended up being included in a block. You're you're violating OFAC sanctions. Like it's 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 mm. very easy to just do a couple backflips and come to that. So I think that'll happen. And yeah, I think you should just view the U.S. accordingly. Yeah, it's funny. This uh, came up. I, um, my fiance and I were um, talking to a, a mortgage broker and uh, I mentioned something about <laughs> getting paid in, in USDC. And, and my fiance Ooh. looked at me like, you know, give me the, the throat cutting <laughs> uh, thing. Like, don't, don't say that. And I was like, oh, right. Like, yeah, like, you know, there's, it starts on, there is like an eventual, um, like regulatory thing that could happen where you're like literally not allowed to do business people with, with people like that. But there already is an, a pretty effective campaign f- to make normal people not trust um, f- this technology and financial transactions um, associated with it. So, so we did talk about a few things that I would like to, to touch on. One is this five-year timeline you mentioned. You've talked about going from black-pilled to, to white-pilled and I'm I'm curious what you think that these next five years are actually going to look like. Like what sorts of changes in, in regulation you anticipate? I believe that um, RabbitX is um, based in Singapore, and so I think like one thing I like to just dive into is like, all right, what do people really need to be leaving the U.S. if they're associated with crypto? What are the next few years? going to look like and um what what changes eventually reverse that 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 type of decision making is it is it simply that crypto will become too common too powerful to resist anymore yeah um good questions so what kind of makes me you know i I guess i spoke to why i feel like the near-term black buildness and you know also kind of drawing on that to in the why the guerrilla approach is I think so applicable here and also should be very white pilling for us longer term. You know, the US historically it largely I think has a lot of its success predicated on winning wars. And but who is it who it does it defeat? It defeats Germany, it defeats, you know, it's China, the USSR. It's designed to go after large centralized countries that occupy land and you know conduct warfare accordingly. But it's it's had a very hard time or lost to you know rice farm uh, you know rice farmers and goat herders, you know, in Afghanistan, Vietnam. Um, it's very, it's difficult to win those wars. And, 
using that parallel, you know, the SEC and regulators are built to go after Barclays, Goldman Sachs and Fidelity and Morgan Stanley, right? And, and these banks that have large, they occupy office buildings, they have a compliance department. Who's your boss? Let me talk to him, right? It, that's who they're built, designed to go after. That's the manpower they are designed to go after, that they have at their disposal to go after as well. They're not built to go after, you know, tens of thousands of developers globally and millions of users with cryptography and, you know, VPNs and anonymizers and stuff. So that's why it's like long-term, like kind of don't worry. Like you just, for the same reason, the pirate base still exists. Um, you know, like you really can't stop these peer-to-peer systems, especially ones that are funded so well and have all the intellectual capital. You know, we we outarm them substantially, I think, through through um, you know the people who just believe in the space too. Um, so anyway, that's kind of like that viewpoint on one, it's going to get worse because of the power dynamics. Two, it's longer run, I think, going to work for the same reason we've seen success in guerrillas against the U.S., regulators against us, it's the same thing. Um, and so... And Rabbit is in Singapore uh, right now, RabbitX, um, which is a perpetual stack on StarkNet. Uh, and we're going to expand into other things in the commodity space, Forex, uh, rate swaps, uh, basically derivatives overall, not and it, not just crypto, also like, you know, TradFi instruments and commodities. Like, you know, we're building for a very, with a very long-term mindset and, you know, structuring kind of how we approach that with like five, with longer term viewpoints. We're not just trying to pump a token or get volume to jump up near term. Like we understand the value that's here. Um, and it can be captured. And so um, some of the founders are in Singapore. So that was kind of a nice, that, that was, a, you know, that's where it was initially founded and created because of that. Um, and it will likely stay there. And we're not focusing on the U.S. near term. We're going to have much of a presence here because of probably related, mostly related to the views I'm sharing. Others in the team share it, maybe not as like ardently as I do, but they think it too. Um, and so what I think brings eventually like from the the five you said the five-year question like when does it become okay we need to just work with this because we can't stop it and i don't know if that's necessarily five years it might be like 10. i'd be very surprised if it's more than 10 though because this space moves very quickly and i think things accelerate from here especially on the backbone of ai and us having credible scaling solutions with ETH and what have you so you know five to ten sounds about right but what i think ultimately brings that back in is when you know Guys like us uh, start to really look into what renouncing their citizenship entails. Like, listen, I, I'm not, I don't want to be here and just pay tithe to the U.S. even if I don't live here. But it's the only government in the world that does that. I mean, technically, there's a small African country called the Treaty that does that, but it's like very <laughs> small and doesn't matter. So like the U.S. is functionally the only country in the world that makes you tithe to it if you're a citizen, no matter where you live. So they do that because they get away with it because it's the United States. Well, when the United States kind of stops being the United States from a financial standpoint, again, it's the same way a business and Apple only charges you fat prices because it can, you know, if, if it couldn't, it would lower them. And that's again, view this like a cartel in a business because that really is how it manages itself. And they're going to lower those prices. And by that, you know, they're going to relent on the citizenship and the, the global taxation. They're going to relent on how they're using civil asset for forfeiture to go after DeFi people. Maybe I think they'll probably do that. Um, and, you know, when they just eventually realize like people leave, you can't really just, you know, the, the brain drain is too much. Um, and then they eventually come back to the U.S. And then in the meantime, I think the U.S. is definitely weakened, but I don't think it's like I'm not calling for the end of it. I just think the U.S. becomes like Germany or the United Kingdom or France. Like it's still a relevant country. It's still obviously powerful. But, you know, you're, it's 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 France. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Like, we'll just go somewhere else. So I think that ultimately how it manifests the U.S. It just loses its hegemony and has to actually compete in a marketplace more normally rather than acting like it's the 8,000 pound gorilla because that's what it always has been. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. You sort of, you've described it that like DeFi eventually wins, that's inevitable. What are some of the technologies that would speed that up? You know, like for the rice farmers, AK-47 was great as, as it was for the Gert herders. But like what, what are the kind of the technologies that exist that are really pushing it forward and what are what's missing today to really accelerate it? So, uh, on the, on the DeFi side, um, you know, what basically allows us to scale into that, I'd say like, you know, ZK rollups and ZK technology, which we're on StarkNet, which is a, a ZK Stark rollup, um, uh, optimistic rollups. I mean, a- anything that allows these transactions to scale and th- these the infrastructure to scale, have more throughput and to not sacrifice security right now, rollups kind of do sacrifice security. They're actually kind of centralized on the sequencer side. So, but they're imperfect, but they're improving. Like that will, that will improve. We're, we're very early. That's not a mean to say we're still early. Like we're really early. 
Um, but things like scaling solutions on Ethereum and, and alt L1s that also do a good job. I'm not like an ETH maxi by any means. I think any infrastructure that is reasonably decentralized and allows people to transact anonymously and permissionlessly is a good thing. And I don't think like viewing our industry as like this competitive at your throat, you know, we really should support each other and build each other up where it's way too early and the small pie is way too small to worry about phantom taking from ETH or whatever, you know, like more is more at this point. It's, it's fine. We should all want us to succeed here. Um, and as that permeates the, the conscious more of, of normies and the user experience is kind of like using fidelity, you know, it's, it's not a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, and we've streamlined this process and transacting is, you know, cost like maybe a couple bucks or, or less. Uh, that kind of breaks the, the back of the unit. That, that is, that's the killer. Those are the killer features like numbers, like power is always in numbers, I think here. And all of these features that make it more accessible, cheaper and easier to use speak to that. Um, and I would also mm -hmm. say on the side, um, also stuff like Filecoin, Urbit, um, Render, which is like distributed GPU usage. Um, also streamlining this stuff in a way that really demonstrates kind of like completely incontrovertibly like, whoa, hey, crypto is not just meme coins bouncing around either. Have you heard about AWS? Like they're doing that mm -hmm. too, right? So I think like showing really credible use cases and like what Urbit's doing, um, which might be harder for normies to understand, but like really will help establish us as well as like there, there's there's tech here on a, on a multifaceted scale here and it's not just finance it's finance too and you know that selling point is what will bring more on board but it just has to be accessible and relatively cheap so any tech that speaks to that i think is very helpful yeah i think logan from zorp from our last episode um he took a very interesting stance where you know without urbit humans might not remain a um, a species with computers. And so I'm kind of curious, like, what's your pitch for DEXs as kind of like as a essential part of this DeFi of humanity. future? Of humanity. <laughs> yeah, let's just go big. Yeah. 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 I mean, so I, I think that that's fair. I, that parallel is interesting to me. Um, I, I didn't hear his other rationalization on that. So. Uh, but that means, <laughs> I, I, I would say I'm happy to go into it if you need it, but yeah, no, that's okay. I think, I, I think I get the gist though. Like part of why I think also like DeFi is just inevitable from even a normie adoption and willingness standpoint is also just simple economics. Um, and, and I would, it's axiomatic that the more people you remove from a supply chain, the more value accrues to the two tr that want to transact. Right. So mm -hmm. like if I want to trade, if I want to do a trade with something else, if I have to go through a broker who then has to go through the NYC, who then has to match that with whomever, and maybe they had, maybe it's the seventies, they had to use a guy in the pit saying, I'll take 20 of this. You know, they're, they're, that's a supply chain of people that all need to cut. Every single person in, in a supply chain needs to cut. But this, you know, the simple way to view this and to pitch this, I think, to normies is that we move people, we disintermediate people out of financial supply chains, like pure and simple. If you wanted to hail a car, if I wanted to hail Bitchell to pick me up, I have to go through Urbit to communicate with him to pick me up. Uber takes a cut. If I can go directly to Bitchell and say, hey, pick me up, like, hey, that's that's more money Bitchell keeps, that's less money I have to pay. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, as this manifests itself, that will that shows through. Like those margins and those cost savings, you know, people care about dollars at the end of the day, or at least a lot of them will. Not, not everyone. Um, some people might always stay on centralized stuff because they nice they like feeling warm and safe that way. That, that's fine. But We'll attract a lot more people, I think, with financial incentives, because I think it's impossible to not provide that um, of something funny that uh, that I, I uh, that I shared on the timeline was, you know, bankers are just JavaScript running really, really, really slowly and expensively. <laughs> right. <laughs> OK, so like everything that banker has to do costs money and we're kicking him out. We don't have him. We don't have a compliance department. We don't have any of that. We have code operating autonomously with stuff that runs with node validators and you pay gas for that and we'll be increasing less gas. So, you know, that'll show up in, in costs. And um, does that, oh, oh, so back to your wire DEX is so important. Um, the, the DEX is fundamentally that. I mean, allowing people to transact permissionlessly and anonymously like that should fundamentally lower the cost for transacting and also open the access to it from just a, you know, freedom of access and just, you know, autonomy standpoint, I believe it on a personal level, on an ideological level. And I also believe it on a financial and economic level. I also don't like have, you know, the ability for someone to seize my assets if they, if the U S reaches out to them, which you can't do with the decks. Mm. Um, so there's just, a, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's integral to what we're building here and why they're so important. And, you know, it's part of why, you know, I support and love rabbit so much and what we're looking to do. I, um, let's backtrack a little bit into talk. You've been talking about 
all these things that DEXs can do. I know, you know, we don't want to do too much lip service to uh, how this help improves the lives of the marginalized or whatever, but I, I actually am I'm <laughs> curious how you talked about the ways that a technology like this could be really important for, for developing economies and for, um, you know, bringing people into the financial system who might not currently have access to it. So I am curious as to your take about what is, what is something like DEX access mean for people who are currently shut out of the system? Uh, yeah, it means, uh, I think it means as much to them or it will eventually as it kind of means to us. Um, you know, if you're not able to access it, and a lot of times, like in Africa, it's not because it's, you know, some court sort of nefarious, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to oppress them kind of thing. It's just because no one wants to build the infrastructure because the economics and the money aren't there. Like, you know, people go where the money is. Um, and I think what this does is it lowers a lot of the hurdles of what you need to set something up. Like, right, our team is like 12 people, 11 people. Um, you know, it, it's very, it doesn't cost very much money or take a whole lot to spin up something that allows, you know, millions and billions of dollars of transactions to flow through it. Like Uniswap, uh, I'm going to get this, this is imprecise, but functionally accurate. Like Uniswap for a while, I think did volume that was very commensurate to Coinbase and their team is like 40 people and Coinbase is like, I don't know, two or 3000 or something like it's just to display the massive disparity in human capital needed to create something that allows a lot of financial, you know, interactions and commerce to happen. So by nature of the investment now having to be much, much lower, than it otherwise would have been, I think that will make people much, much more inclined now to invest in things like Africa or poorer places where, hey, the the, the OPEX and the capital expenditure, the CapEx just didn't make sense before. Like just the volume and people just aren't here. Well, it's like, hey, this only takes maybe like three, four developers. We can just fork the code from something else and run it here. Like it, it really lowers, I think, the, the uh, what you would otherwise need to provide this critical stuff to people. And so I think it'll get built more for that reason, because um, the economics are there. And I think it'll mean a great deal to people like that, as I imagine, it, I mean, as it does to me, as it, as it does to all of us. Yeah, it also seems like it allows, you know, people in every single country to kind of support a common, say, protocol or currency and kind of remove the risk that is sort of localized to a particular state. Like, I don't want to buy a security that comes from most of Africa. I won't. You know, I've never bought one. I've never heard of anyone who has. Um, but then, if, if but if it's African developers supporting a or African money supporting a particular project, then it's like okay, I can I can rely on the code to be secure. I don't have to worry about mm. weird corruption or confiscation. It mm -hmm. seems to kind of fix that issue pretty well. It does. It does. And you know what? That's a I, that's a great point. And you know, kind of to expand on that. I forget the guy who authored this article, and it discusses a concept called hardness. He's an ETH dev, I believe. I wish I could claim oh, this idea. Yeah, we're, we're big fans of uh, this art you're talking about. It's like Ad, um, Adam's bits and, and blockchains. Um, and blockchain. mm -hmm. Yeah, we yeah. It's, uh, the, the the way back catalog of the the first network age episodes. We talked about that um, a lot. So if you're a deep cut oh, okay. uh, listener out there, you'll we'll we'll link to it too because it is a totally we love article. We love hardness on this. Yeah, exactly. Of course, <laughs> we're very hard, jokes hard, to go, to hard go all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to what you said, like, and this is kind of speaks to my, the more you disintermediate in entities out of a supply chain, the more value is accrued. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, I mean, like, you know, humans always look to, you know, predictable things that provide the future to be certain in some way. Atoms were the rudimentary version of that. And then as they got undone or, un, you know, incapable of providing us the hardness we need, we create institutions for that. And though, you know, legal code, um, laws, police, just, uh, you know, uh, regulation, things like that, that let us be able to reasonably predict the future and engage in a way that lets us transact with safety and integrity. Um, and now that's been codified on, on chain in code that everyone can see. And that is not subject to the whim of how some compliance person or U S regulator feels that day. And I think that's the ultimate form of hardness that we could hope for. And it provides hardness to, uh, many people in a very cheap and, mo and a cost-effective way. And I think that's, again, another one of the killer apps, so to speak, that most people don't really view it as. But again, this is another one of the re rationales just to me is like, this is this is inevitable. Like, it's superior in so many different ways. This is a very serious topic, but I, I can't stop smiling at the ultimate hardness provided at the cheapest cost. Um, <laughs> <That's great. laughs> this is, uh, well, we'll link to this, like I said, but the article is Adams Institutions and Blockchains by Josh Stark. And um, it really is about as um, articulate a piece on this as I've as I've ever read. So we'll make mm, sure. very good piece. Definitely recommend. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wonderful. Uh, Dimitri, I was thinking this, um, and, and feel free to say this is too personal and we can have uh, Hapsil remove it, but are you in the U.S.? Are you already in the process of exiting yourself? Um, so I'm from the U.S. You can like tell from the accent. And I've been pretty itinerant the last three years or so. Um, I'm kind of the classic digital nomad right now. Uh, mostly actually started off within the U.S., like Airbnbs for like the first year and a half. And then recently I've been doing a lot of that in Europe, um, like Malta, Barcelona, Amsterdam, stuff like that. So like I'm, I'm still a citizen, but you know, I am thinking in in the ways that I am describing here and it's playing into it. And as far as like what an exit means to me, like physically not living here, I actually could probably see myself doing that within a year or two. Um, I'm going to probably head back to Malta this year and we'll see. So I don't have it like formally set up yet, but I'm, I'm trending in that direction. I tend to do things like I tend to think about them and they slowly start going that way. I don't just Mm -hmm. like do it, but I'm trending in that direction. I would probably, and I bet I probably will do it within a couple of years. By, by do it, do you mean like renounce citizenship? Um, (laughs) by do it, I mean like formally having like my home base be not in the U S maybe like Eastern Europe or something or or South America. You guys are kind of, uh, uh, El Salvador pilling me. And Argentina killing yeah, yeah. me. Your, your Argentina <laughs> episode was good. I really liked that guy. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was Silo, yeah. So what was I going to say next? Uh, oh, oh, but in terms of renouncing citizenship, I mean, that's a serious decision. Like, I understand the totally. The, the, yeah, the, the gravity of that. So I don't know about that within two years, but it seems like a natural part of the process because I can tell you, if I'm not living in the U.S., I'm not going to be happy about paying tithe to it for – for, for, I don't know for what at that point, right? Like I don't live here for it to maintain its its empire. I, I mean, so that will probably follow suit because on a personal level, I just that'll be deeply yeah. upsetting to me. Um, I mean, I've been so. I've been thinking about what you what you were said earlier about how um, the power of brain drain of you know the U.S. can only tax people living abroad because it's the U.S. and because people have to do what it says to do, and eventually the the price becomes too high. But it's it is an incredibly um, difficult, serious decision to actually take the steps to to renounce your citizenship. Uh, not everyone who listens to the show is is in the U.S., but it it's not only lengthy and hard, but it has serious consequences. And I guess like I started thinking about that for myself personally. And as much as I might be aligned ideologically with some of these ideas, it's really difficult to think about. Um, you know, that type of complete exit personally, um, just mm-hmm. with with family and um, community ties. And it's I think that there are going to be some people who work in our space that are going to face some difficult decisions in the near future about whether, you know, their ideals and potentially their work coming into con- um, conflict with, you know, a day to day life. Mm hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I think the positive way to maybe view that, though, is you might not have to, um, because I do believe many will make that decision. And in conjunction with the fact that they continue to do all their little games and operation choke points and it doesn't really stop anything. Eventually, again, I I do think the U.S. US relents because they realize we're just hurting ourselves now. Like we're not the control is gone. We're just going to be Germany. That's fine. Still wealthy, still whatever. It's okay. Um, and when they do that, though, I think part of that is understanding, hey, come back. Like, we won't do the citizenship thing anymore. We're not just going to tax you no matter where you live. We'll be like EU countries in that way. We'll we'll do something, you know, with, with other nations there that coordinate that in a way where you don't have to do that. So it's my hope that actually that manifests and that we don't really have to do that because the U.S. is forced to change that ridiculously draconian rule that only they implement and enforce which again, just speaks to like, <laughs> you do the things you can get away with, right? Like, I don't even think that's a uniquely American phenomenon. I think China would do it too if it could. I think anybody would do it if they could. I mean, it's just like how a business is. It charges you as much as it can that people will buy. And if you mm-hmm. force it by not buying its product, it lowers the price. Like, that's just what's going to happen here. Um, so hopefully that's the approach. Um, but if you do renounce it, um, it's not like you never can ever come here again. Like there are definitely shades to that process. Um, so it's worth exploring a little bit, uh, but it's not like you abandon your, your family and friends forever. So it's, anyway. yeah, it's also kind of an interesting situation where like, if you're just living abroad as an American, you're married, et cetera, you can exclude so much income from your taxes anyway, that it's really like for the really rich where it makes sense. And then those people don't necessarily need access 
to U.S. jobs. Like that's that's the thing that's really struck me about living abroad. If you're not in crypto, there's this huge divide in like salaries between a U.S. software engineer and anyone unlucky enough to be born somewhere else and buy that <laughs> trade. You know, like mm. between a German and software engineer and an American one. And so, you know, that's a huge issue if you're trying to renounce. But it seems like most of the tax advantages are for the rich anyway. And then they're not really, you know, the only guy I know who renounced was so crypto rich that like he was never thinking about working in the US again. He didn't really need access to the job market in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Exactly. And again, the US knows it can pull rank there because a lot of the best jobs and the best paying ones are here, right? So um, yeah, its behavior isn't surprising. To me, the US doing that is, is as surprising as a lot of scammers and scumbags also being in crypto right now. Like it's just kind of the life cycle of of what you should expect something in that position to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think it'll be forced out of it from competition the same way I think we'll bring on a lot of major adoption and real use cases as we provide scalability and stability. Um, so yeah, I just yeah, think the sure. life cycles. I'm I'm curious, you know, let's use the granilla uh, the gorilla analogy again with um, you know, Vietnam had support from the Chinese, I imagine. Like, who are, who's going to support these DeFi gorillas? Like, who are the allies? Is it <laughs> Singapore? Or, who are the allies here? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be the ones that uh, I, I think are not necessarily enemies of the West, but aren't the most ideologically aligned with it. El Salvador is the most beautiful and shining example I've ever seen. Like, they're taking themselves incredibly seriously. They're going out of their way to signal to us, hey, come here. We're safe. You can set up shop. We're not going to tax X, Y, and Z. Um, you're going to see a lot more of that. Um, Argentina would not surprise me um, at all, especially because of all the problems they're having domestically um, with the peso and what have you. Um, I would imagine, yeah, I would imagine maybe countries like even Turkey, which even though it's in NATO, it's you know really not that close with the U.S. So ones that have at best a, a lukewarm relationship to just don't you know are like, hey, <laughs> we'll take it. This undermines them. Come over here, and also we'll we take we'll happy to invite the economic activity. So. Um, Russia, probably eventually though, you know, that's hard to say that'd be comfortable now as us people, but Ukraine, when it settles down, I would say a lot of the Baltic States, probably, um, you know, ones that are relatively poor, um, and are going out of the way to realize kind of the land grab they can take here with the brain drain. And as long as we can provide safety and some kind of, you know, reasonable lifestyle here, we might be able to have our little Silicon Valley of crypto. Um, so I think a lot more El Salvador's and, Argentina type things will pop up and we'll kind of go where we will there. I don't know. I can't say one specifically really sticks out to me, but I think a lot of them in like, you know, poor Eastern Europe type countries or Latin America, that would be kind of my, my, my bet. Well, it's like all these are places that have something to be gained by disrupting the system, right? Exactly. Powers is zero some game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you want to, you want to buck the trends that, that aren't working for you. And it's just the, when power, financial power becomes distributed so much, um, so much more widely, it's just not going to be possible to control anymore. I, I mean, we've talked about before, but the metaphor is, is so strong. You just can't go after everybody and everything. The, the SEC is, is built for one particular type of warfare. You know, they have, they have tanks and front lines and, and that's how, how they do it, but they're not going to be able to, to get everyone. I think, and it, you said this when we spoke before, but I think there, there may be a couple high profile people who fall, right? Like they're, they're going to mm-hmm. be able to get a couple targets here and there. Like, you know, we saw with tornado cash. RIP McAfee. I think he's alive still, honestly. Yeah. A couple, <laughs> a couple yeah. brothers will probably he's, have he's to fall. He's an Uncle Ted's right? cabin with, with, with Uncle Ted. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uncle Ted's cabin. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just down the road. That's, there's a brand. There's a brand and a, a successful business somewhere in that name. I like that. Name. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. a country store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Cracker Barrel went woke, so now we're going to have Uncle Ted, Ted's cabin. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. dude, I see, I see. <laughs> you have you have baseness infused into the name. There, it'd be very hard to make that go woke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're going to love our, you... our syrup and pancakes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, carry on. Do you, Dimitri, think that there is like who is the U.S. going to try to make an example of on the road to inevitable defeat? Who is the U.S. going to go after and, and try to shut the doors on, even if it's ineffective in the long run? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll do a lot of regulation by enforcement and it will do a lot of like, you know, public execution, so to speak, of some people that tries to spark fear. And 
again, I don't think these are particularly insightful, intelligent people that operate these agencies. Um, I don't think, know why you would work there if you were. And I think that's what it's going to do is just going to elicit not an effective, wow, we better listen to the list effective, wow, we better leave. Um, they're not being, they're being erratic and uh, unreasonable. Like they're being clearly now like go apply on the website. You can't do that. And basically all the things Coinbase is struggling with. So, um, I think it'll probably be a large U S name. Um, uh, Brian Armstrong is maybe, I don't know about, you know, he's too big and he's gone out of his way to be like compliant, like so much. So it's like, my God, uh, but maybe someone like Hayden Adams in Uniswap, which is located here. Um, the guy who founded DYDX, um, it's not Alejandro. I forget his first name, Armando. Um, he is out of the US and DYDX is a perpetual Dex, and perps are perps are not officially a, a you know, product that can be traded in the United States, just on a mm -hmm. side note. And they're a future that never expires. And, you know, there's nothing inherently like scammy or risky about them. They're just not, they're a new primitive and it hasn't been approved in the US. And the guy mm -hmm. who runs DYDX like lives in the US. He's US based, uh, at least last time I read. So something like that, where it's like, they're just going to crack the hammer really hard on a guy who's like being earnest and doing right. And I think it's going to, you know, we're all going to see it and it's going to have the exact opposite effect. They're going to hope it to have. Um, but mm -hmm. I imagine it would be a name. We're all probably aware of Hayden Adams and the, the DYDX guy actually spring to mind. It's like big names that aren't too big to go after. Um, kind of that sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, we're safe. <laughs> we're <Yeah>. too small. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, wait till the pod blows up, man. I got to get on the run. Also, we're, we're not earnest or trying to do right. So we're safe on all counts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the Ted cabin, uncle, uncle Ted Kaczynski is, is just down the road for me. So I've got somewhere to hide out. Um, yeah. if, if the feds ever come, um, Perfect seg here. Uh, Ooh, totally from what? <laughs> Sorry, professional. All right, yeah. So seg we're we're segueing. We're doing a, a professional segue to uh, AI stuff, which we which we wanted to hit with you. I know that you've done some writing on AI. You're perhaps a, a little skeptical, not necessarily of of the threat of AGI, but the way it's talked about. I know, and sort of how. The threat of AGI is being used as a, as a cudgel to get to get people to behave um, a certain way. So, uh, as someone who went through probably a couple weeks of real um, AI doomerism depression, uh, maybe maybe you can illuminate for me why why I shouldn't be drawn in by everything that is is being said. <laughs> um, so my my viewpoint there is kind of again assessing it from like a framework standpoint on what's happened recently and from the set of people that tend to do this and what you can expect from that. And then what's the bigger threat? Uh, my threat model is more, what's the more likely uh, substantial threat or the more likely threat to manifest. And um, every explanation and stuff I see, and I haven't dug very deep. I've dug relatively deep into it, but not like, you know, ultra ultra deep, but I've seen enough to see the level of like, uh, I get guesses and, you know, how each one thing is predicated on another thing that maybe has like, I don't know, I'll be generous and say a 5% likelihood of happening. So mm -hmm. I see like seven or eight or nine guesses or, you know, postulations that end up having it manifest with AGI that is bad. And if you multiply, like, you know, take 5% to the ninth power, I mean, what does that come out? It's like 0. 0. 0. 0. 0. Like we can't even put on a calculator. So I know that's being a little autistic with my view of it. And that like, <laughs> okay, you know, an expected value kind of thing is, I, know I would make fun of a rationalist for doing that. But at the same time, though, you have, you're like nine guesses deep that sound like a lot of sci-fi stuff. And I also see a lot of guys who clearly know what they're talking about, like Jan LeCun, um, Beth Jezos, who's a well-known EACC guy, and he works in the space, um, Rune, which is, you know, a very prominent AI guy, um, who are like some flavor of like calm down, like seriously calm down. Like you're, you're, what you're lobbying for, what this ends up doing is centralizing control of the most important technology of our time to bureaucrats. You are literally saying, I'd rather have this be controlled by lawyers than by than by the specialists when you lobby to have the government put constraints on it. That is that's implicitly what's being said when I hear that. Not explicitly, because if I frame it that way, we'd be like, well, that's dumb. But that's how it will manifest is people at the EU controlling this thing. Like, is that who you want, like running this? Or I would rather have Ian LeCun and the guys who have a real hard hold on this. And and people who maybe are big in the AI space and who are detractors. It doesn't all need to be people who are aligned with EACC. But those, you know, and, and the market will, you know, I think <laughs> it sounds a little ideological to me, but I think the market will produce that through these competing forces and forces in these AI models. 
And there's also not going to be just like one or two models. Like it's like saying it's like it's like saying there's going to be one or two dexes. Like there's tons of dexes. Mm-hmm. You can already torrent models. I have some torrented on my computer right now that I can't run because I don't have the GPU power for it. But like I can run it locally. Like that's going to leak more and more and more. So like one, you can't even keep these things like centralized, like OpenAI is doing. These models will get sent out. And so again, what are you trying to stop? Like again, you're not going to stop it. But you're going to do a lot of damage by centralizing a lot of bureaucratic control by people who do not know what they're talking about that empirically tend to just like controlling things for the sake of controlling things. And I think a really easy parallel to the same kind of framework you're seeing now is what we just saw with COVID, where you had an expert class um, leading with a very neurotic worst case scenario about how this could go. And you see like, you know, that happening a lot. Well, like it could happen, like, you know, everyone might die and doesn't, it's not even close to that. You see models that are, I remember models from COVID that you had like you know, huge, huge, huge numbers. It didn't get anywhere close. So you're going to have these worst case scenarios being pushed forward by experts. Um, and then you have a bureaucratic class latching onto that saying, well, we need to do something. And that justifies their control of the, the, the matter at hand. They exert more control and that will never go away. Like the government programs don't get canceled or, or scaled back. They get bigger. <laughs> like, you know. There's a common, there's a Milton Friedman saying like, uh, I forget, I'm going to butcher it, but you know, there's no thing more uncommon than like a, an ended government program or something like basically saying once they're made, like they stay, they don't get undone. Like laws don't expire kind of thing, you know? Um, so from that lens, like, listen, I, I want it to be controlled and overseen by the people who know what they're doing, who have what I think is the, the most noble vested interest to have it be as good as possible. And good also means not evil, <laughs> Obviously, right? And like mm-hmm. aligned. Um, so the best bet we have, I think, for this to behave and this technology to be used in a useful way is to have the guys who know what they're doing model and, pro- and build it out and to absolutely not put in the control of a, a political lawyer class managing it who have like, no idea like what they're doing or talking about. Um, and that's kind of the framework I take to like one, I see a very, I see a, a pattern that reminds me eerily of what I just saw three years ago. Like, to a T like Elijah Yadowski is like, is exactly like Tony Fauci. Like, could you be more afraid than him? Like he's, he's he just, the scenarios he describes are just horrible. Um, and I just see a lot of that same kind of framework being used. So that's why I am like staunchly EACC. And I think the by far greater threat lies with allowing this extremely powerful technology to mostly rest in the hands of people who I think will use it. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I'd be lying if I if I said I haven't been kept uh, awake at night by some of the worst case scenarios, but it seems like far m- more likely is what Jake Bruckman on a, on one of our previous episodes described as the mundane singularity, where everything in your life is totally controlled by a centralized AI that you just have absolutely no awareness of or interaction with and don't give it any second thoughts. And anytime <laughs> you ask your AI, you know, like, help me decorate my apartment. It's, it's giving you, you know, whatever brands are, are paying the most. And it's just inserted into your life at, at every facet. And I think mm. that, you know, is, you know, you may not be dead, but like, you know, some sort of spiritual death will occur certainly in that, in that scenario. And it seems like if, if a bunch of 5% things need to happen in a row to get, um, you know, total Terminator uh, Skynet situation. Uh, there are there are a lot of much more likely things that happen to wind up in this mundane singularity, which basically align with what you're saying. Like, do governments and uh, large corporations want to make a lot of money and have control? And they're and they're going to line those things up in a row and knock them down like bowling pins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think empirically the threat has manifested consistently in one direction, and the pattern is abundantly clear to me from what we just saw. And yeah, I just, that's, that's, uh, I, I agree with that. And I, I think it probably does manifest somewhere in a mundane center. Honestly, uh, we tend to love like, you know, exaggerated utopian or dystopian binary like thinking. And that's kind of where we're sitting now, right? The EACCs are utopians and the, the D cells are dystopian. And frankly, it probably ends up somewhere in the middle where it's like a really, really great tool that automates away and removes a lot of the, the banal, unpleasant boring stuff that right now humans have to do so hopefully it's it's a great tool to open us up to uh be more creative and enhance productivity by leveraging the things humans do well um which we don't do compute and rote tasks nearly as well as this but hey 
uh, it's my hope and maybe some of belief is for something right now that we will do some things better, at least within our, within our lifetimes. So anyway, Mitchell is terrified yeah, of, of, subtle, of being subtly manipulated to like change the color of his living room. So he recently got engaged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Overt manipulation is the way to go, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd rather, yeah. Just, I'd rather just don't hide it. Who's subjugating me? Exactly. I, I'm well aware who has the power here. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, sorry, no, but, uh, I, yeah, I, I, for a dumb ahead, joke, I, I totally railroaded you there, man. <laughs> That's fine. You can yeah, feel free anytime. I'm happy to, no, I, I, you know, I, my, my urban name is Bitchel Ritson. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be the, uh, <laughs> any jokes you need. the, the ritual, the ritual bitch son. Yeah. I'll cut all that out. No, I meant, uh, sorry, no, Neil run. Cause he was going to say something and I, I, I steamrolled him is what I meant to say. It was good banter. I think. I don't oh, think that God. question's that critical. <laughs> <laughs> is there any room for Luddism here? I, I This is perhaps a, a playing a bit of devil's advocate, but all of us spend so much time around um, technology and, and what is probably fringe technology for most people that it's easy to spend all our time justifying what we do and, and how we do it without looking critically at it and... I think that that can that can be a mistake. I think you know it's worth still asking questions. All right, how do we want these technologies to to play a role in their in their in our lives? And there are ways in which it can be bad for us without you know resulting in the death of everyone or or a police state. And I think mm-hmm. that this is something that with with AI is still a really salient question to me is is where do we um you know discover and loot our humanity and where do we lose it and i think that like what you said dimitri that i that i'm hopeful for but i you know can be somewhat skeptical of is like you know an ai that allows us to spend more time doing human things this is what uh, tim luckmitch have the the head of okbar says is like let computers do computer things and that ultimately is the the thing that has most persuaded me to be really invested in in crypto and and urbit and at least AI interested if uh, if a little scared of it is is let computers do computer things and I I do worry about the places where computers are going to start doing human things and I I, I don't know that I have a particular call to action or something but I think. It is as we move forward with these things. This, these are the types of checks and questions that I want to continue to ask in my life: is is where are these things um, enabling me and pushing me and the people I care about forward, and where are they abstracting away like a part of reality that I that I really care about? Mm. I, I, so I'm, I, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I think I have a white pill for you there. I get what you're getting okay. at, and um, I do. I have a white pill for you there. Thank and, you. I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> and um, so. It's, it's largely predicated on, remember, that the content and the things that are created are, are created for humans. Like, you know, bear in mind, like, the end product is meant for a human. AI is not making it for itself. Um, and, you know, if, if you wanted to watch chess, you could watch the best chess possible if you pitted two AIs against each other. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you don't. You watch, like, Magnus Carlsen, right? You want to watch Magnus. Um, there's a reason for that is even though it's, it's technically and objectively inferior chess playing, like, you want to see people engage at something because mm-hmm. you are a person and you are evolved to, to seek out exceptional human output. Um, that will need to be evolved away over a very, very long time for that to stop mattering. And so while the AI might do a lot of things, you know, one piece I did is like, Hey, it actually sucks right now. I like creative thinking. You sound like the guy from Goodwill hunting that just gets dunked <laughs> on, right? Yeah. The midwit, like it, that might improve. Frankly, I think that pe- I'm, I think I'm very correct, but I'm only maybe correct for maybe perhaps five years or so. Yeah. I don't know. Um, cause I imagine that will improve. Um, but anyway, though, what will not change though, is your desire to seek out exceptional output, you know, um, or what you think is artistically valid or what have you. And I think that will be just, uh, inextricably tied to seeking out human output. And I actually think crypto plays a very poetic involvement with that. Um, and a piece I did was, you know, uh, AI is artificial abundance, crypto is artificial scarcity. And, kind of like viewing these two things as a, as a, and I, I sort of think this is the case, like as a form of digital homeostasis, that the same way the body has competing forces in it to maintain balance and not let things get out of whack, 
um, you know, these two things are gestating like kind of along the same track. Um, they're both very visible. They're really not quite ready for prime time, but we can see that they're powerful enough that they're going to matter, right? Like it, it kind of feels actually close to the same development cycle. And I kind of almost by a lot, like Darwinianly, poetically think that's, you know, it'll continue that way. And the same way AI saturates you in like a deluge of like mediocre content or just things that can be generated relatively easily. Um, the same way it's, you know, saturating stuff that's like, you know, it'll be very easy for people to create a lot of output very rapidly. I think you'll see lots and lots of that. Um, crypto can allow you to constrain that abundance by, you know, having it, having everything you create be signed or having things certain people create that you value and you want to hear what they're saying be cryptographically signed. Like, I want to hear what, what Boldbug has to say about something. He signs his message um, on chain in a way that I can verify this was him. So like, he can't be um, plagiarized or he can't have you know, an AI copy and say, this is from him. Deep fake videos, things like that can be cryptographically signed. So a lot of this, this constraint, um, I think really fits in well with the artificial kind of deluge and concern of loss of humanity you're going to see with AI, which is definitely true, but view it holistically in conjunction with what's also being developed, which is cryptography, not just crypto. Um, you know, the crypt cryptography writ large and what it can do for communication, like what PGP has done for security with communication. A, a form of that, I think, will exist to constrain AI in a way that maintains balance and lets us find the human because you're always going to want to seek out the human in some way. And I actually think you, a lot of times you may even feel betrayed if someone used an LLM to create content and then signed it. And I think there probably won't even be scandals around that where they feel like, all right, this guy's a scammer in a way. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's an, you know, and he's a content scammer. Like you're yeah, using like lip syncing. You know, exactly. Yeah. It, perfect it's perfect analogy. Perfect analogy. The music is still there. You can hear it, but you're, they're lying and you don't like it, right? It makes the performance less impressive. I can't um, tell, I, but I'm upset they did it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. That's a great parallel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so anyway, I, I do think it will drain some of the humanity from stuff, but I don't. I think the core thing that we seek will, will not go away. Um, it has to be evolved away and that'll take a really long time. And I think crypto will work to keep that in check. So, Well... I certainly could not have said that any better myself, and I will swallow this white pill gladly. And Dimitri, Mr. Back the Bunny, thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been a, a pleasure and an education. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate having uh, you having me on. And to, to all our listeners, we will see you next time on The Network Age. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Network Age. If you like what you heard or want to support us in any way, please give us a five-star review on the platform of your choice. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure to, to leave a review with words. We'll, we'll even read it on the pod as we've done in the past. So thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.